0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction Of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. Okay,
1: so my guest today is Deborah Lupton. Deborah is the Centenary Research Professor in the Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra in Australia. Her current work is on digital sociology, particularly in critical digital health studies, critical data studies, self-tracking cultures, the digitization of pregnancy, sociology of 3D printing, and social media and academia. She's recently published a book entitled The Quantified Self with Polity Press, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So yeah, I'd just like to welcome you to the show, Deborah. Thanks, John. Okay, so you're book is one of the first, if not the first. Is it in fact the first, or am I, wrong?
2: I, th- I think I think it is the first. I've i I've just come out in front of an, another book that's about to come out, so there's a sort of plethora of new stuff happening, but I think I just managed to be the first with the book. Okay, so it's, it's the first academic
1: monograph on the topic of the quantified self. It covers quite a lot of ground, and we certainly won't be able to cover all of that in today's conversation. But I'd like if we focused on on three aspects, so we'll have three segments to the discussion today. First is just to get a general sense of the quantified self movement and the technologies underlying it. And then second, have a look at how this technology can affect our self-understanding. And then finally, to consider maybe some of the political dimensions of the quantified self. So if we just get straight into the first of those topics, I suspect many people who are listening to this show will be familiar with the idea of self-tracking. Indeed, I suspect many people use their smartphones and other devices to track and and record at least some of their daily lives. In fact, I I suspect this is almost unavoidable nowadays, and that might be something we talk about in a moment. But some people may not be familiar with the idea of a quantified self movement, nor appreciate the full scope of the available technologies. So perhaps you could help us to get a better sense of all this. And let's just start with a definitional question, which is what do you understand by that term quantified self? What does it mean?
2: Well, that term has been around now since 2007. That's really when it first was invented by two editors of Wired magazine in Silicon Valley. So they, they were beginning to notice that they and their friends and colleagues were starting to use digital technologies to track aspects of their lives, so whether it was um, wearable devices like Fitbit bracelets or... Like computers or smartphone or um, iPad apps they they were noticing that people were starting to use these technologies to record details of their lives um, in ways that hadn't really been done before because yes we've been tracking ourselves for millennia, and um, the ancients did talk about tracking aspects or monitoring aspects and reflecting on aspects of their lives. So it's not as if it is a new thing. We've been doing this for a long, 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 long time. But I think the quantified self really focuses on the digital nature of self-tracking and the, the, the digital devices that are around these days are able to to uh, help people monitor themselves in ways that haven't previously been available, so that they they are able to do it 24-7. Many of them can do it in automated ways, so we don't actually have to think too much about it. These data are being collected without us having to put a lot of effort into it. Um, And just the sheer detail, um, and also the ways that different databases can now be combined. I think those are the the really new dimensions of self-tracking using digital technologies. And the quantified self, as I say, it was it was a term invented by these two editors of Wired magazine, Kevin Kelly, and Gary Wolf, and they 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 developed this term. And as the term suggests, it is very much about metrics about counting things, but it's not only about quantifying, even though they do use the term quantified. It, it's really just about monitoring and tracking and logging aspects of your life. Um, and so they, these two people, Kelly and Wolf, they started to run meetings um, in their local area in Silicon Valley in California. Then they set up a website called The Quantified Self and that provided a focus for people to upload videos show and tell videos they call them of describing what um what they do when they quantify themselves or monitor themselves and so it's got a very much of a communal dimension to it, at least as it's articulated on the Quantified Self website. And there's now two international conferences that take place each year on for members of the Quantified Self, people who sort of see themselves as belonging to that, that movement. Um, and there's lots of meetups around the world as well. There's a, there's a few here in Australia most of them are in the U.S., but, but, and there's quite a few in the U.K. and Europe, so, and, you know, in fact, in parts of Asia as well. So it's really proliferated since that first, first, that first sort of establishment of the term back in 2007. It's, um, this notion of the quantified self has become quite common, and I've also found, I mean, one thing I did in my own research was I looked at how the news media, or at least the press, Um, newspapers reported the quantified self and I did find that the term has been taken up quite enthusiastically in the media when talking about self-tracking so it seems to have that ring about it that quantifying the self or the quantified self it seems to have that that phrase that really resonates in a lot of areas um, in terms of how it's described in both popular culture and also in amongst self-tracking communities.
1: Yeah and I mean in that sense has it taken over then from older terms like life-logging was a term that was used a lot in the past and is still yeah. used by some people, but that, that's really kind of fallen away now, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, there was this, there was a lot of interest in life-logging, and there's quite a lot of um, – when I was seeing what research had been done into this area of self-tracking, I did notice that f- quite a while previous to the late two, first decade of the, of the 2000s, around when the quantified self emerged, Life logging was used quite a lot because of, because we had computerized technologies, we had spreadsheets and software that could help people self-track. So there was interest in human computer interaction studies, for example, quite a bit of interest in that use of, of computer software. Um, but since then, yes, we, t- we don't tend to use that term life logging very much. It does tend to be more self-tracking or the quantified self. And Even though they, my book is called The Quantified Self, The subtitle is A Sociology of Self-Tracking. I actually prefer the term self-tracking because I think the quantified self, um, it does have a very narrow meaning. It does tend to relate more to that, that website and the people who see themselves as uh, adhering to the ideals of that website. My publisher did want me to use the term, the word, the, the phrase that quantified self, but um, I'm I'm actually, I do state in the book quite early on that I actually prefer the term self-tracking. Yeah, it's, it's possibly a bit more
1: informative and uh, broad-ranging, whereas, yeah, as you say, the quantified self seems to narrowly um, refer to that that particular movement, although your publisher was perhaps correct if it's the case that the quantified self term has taken hold in,
2: in the popular culture, then... Um, yeah, I guess it's a ses- sexier title, so we can't we can't sort of argue against that, can we?
1: No, but the, your point about preferring the term self-tracking does get into something that I did want to talk about, which is that we have this the quantified self movement narrowly defined, but in effect, we're all involved in this kind of digital self-tracking nowadays. It's, it's practically unavoidable, isn't it?
2: Well... It depends, again, on how you define self-tracking. And, again, I, I, I took pains to define it quite clearly in the book, in the early pages. So, yes, of course, we are all being, uh, we're all under some kind of digital surveillance. When we, whenever we interact online, um, you know, we, we are being um, monitored by whether it's the internet empires like Google or Facebook um, or whether it's national security agencies, as Edward Snowden has managed to reveal to us. Or, you know, lots of different actors and agencies are engaging in looking at what we do using digital media. And these days when we walk outside into public spaces, there are many embedded sensors as well. So we may not even be aware of that, but um, our movements in space, in public space, are being recorded with digital technologies Without our consent and often without our knowledge, so yes that 's true we are we are not able well, i mean all of us really we're not able to opt out of being monitored by other people now self tracking is somewhat different from that sort of general surveillance of people using digital technologies in that, as I say in the book self tracking is about the fact that the very term self tracking implies that the person who is being tracked is actually using those data themselves. So I say that self-tracking is actually about someone being exposed to those data, being able to see at least some of the data that is being collected about them and and making decisions about how to use those data. They may ignore them or avoid them, but they are able to view them. So that I think is is different from where there's – Surveillance of people using the digital technologies that they, where they can't see those data, where they don't know what those data sets tell them about themselves. Yeah, so self-tracking involves this
1: um, kind of self-directed version of, of surveillance. It's not the, the top-down surveillance by the state or by corporate agents. It's it's done by the individual. Presumably, for some kind of individual benefit.
2: Well, I think in some ways um, that that's how self-tracking really started out. The whole notion of the quantified self is about that what I call the private mode of um, of self-tracking, whereby people have made their own decision to engage in monitoring using various devices. Um, what I'm finding, what I talk about in the book, is that those that mode is not the only mode these days, and there are. There are elements of self-tracking which are imposed upon people or pushed upon people, Um, and and there we're getting into very interesting questions about where the voluntary nature of self-tracking is. But they are still exposed to the information, though. Even if it is imposed on you, if if you are able to view your information, then I think that is a mode of self-tracking. It's where you can't see the information, but other people can see it. I think that's the key difference. Yeah, so it's it's represented and made visually or some other way available
1: to you for, for use. And we might come back to issues maybe around consent and the imposition of, of self-tracking on, on people. And This is going to be a general question, but I think it might be worth it as well, getting it for people to get a sense of like what is out there at the moment. So what, what kind of information are people tracking or is being tracked at the moment? And you know, what kind of apps and technologies are available?
2: Oh well, there's many, many. There's a multitude. Um, the most popular are the fitness and, and health and weight tracking related apps and soft other software. You um, can go onto, you know, so you may not use an app. You can go onto a website for some of them and, and use the the software on the website. But I guess most of it is done using apps on mobile devices like smartphones or or wearable devices, smartwatches, bracelets, headbands and so on those kind of wearable devices and well you know if you go into one of the app stores and and look at what's available for self-tracking in addition to the fitness and health and, and weight loss related apps there are many that look at things like people's mood or where they can track their mood each day or even things like work productivity so there's all sorts of software you can use now where you can actually see how much time you spend on various tasks or what what the outputs are each day and so on. So it's not just about the body. It can be about um, mental health questions or emotions or moods. It can be you can you can self track social relationships. And the kinds of messages you have with people, and try to make sense of who you are. You know your social networks, who you're contacting, who you are most, uh, who your your social ties are strongest with. I mean, if you, if you look about, if you look at the sorts of data you get from interacting on social media, I would argue that's a form of self-tracking. For example, if you say post an image of yourself on Facebook, or or upload a status about you know what you've done that day and you know you facebook tells you how many likes you get you can see how many comments you get from people and so on so that is i would say that's a form of self tracking because it's it's seeing you have people it's telling you how people are responding to your um, your the The material you upload to something like like Facebook, if you go on Twitter, the same thing or Instagram, you get responses, you can see them. they're returned to you from the platform so that that is another form of self-tracking as well.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. and maybe thought about it that as as fitting in within the category of self-tracking behaviors, but I guess yeah, you're right, it's a way of um, tracking information about yourself and I guess how other people react to you in particular. Maybe I'll just move on to a question about the demographic, particularly maybe more narrowly in in the quantified self movement. I mean, who who are the kinds of people that are attracted to this and who are the typical uh, proponents of the self-tracking movement?
2: Well, the quantified self people are a certain group of people. Um, There's a lot of other people who engage in self-tracking who wouldn't see themselves as being part of that movement or wanting to adhere to that movement. But if we're talking specifically about people who go to the go to the website and interact on the website on the discussion boards or just read other people's posts or view the show and tell videos or if we think about the people who do go to the face-to-face meetings, or the conferences. Okay, so there, there are a certain group of people out of all the self-trackers in the world who are engaging in self-tracking. Um, from what I can tell from reading the website, uh, from meeting some, some of the people involved in the quantified self who go to the meetups, who are doing research into the quantified self, and from other people's research in, into who uses the quantified self website and who go to the meetings, it would seem to be a fairly narrow demographic in that it is again, mostly as a sort of Silicon Valley um, phenomenon um, or whatever the version might be in Europe or Australia of the Silicon Valley demographic, which is, you know, your your white, middle class, um, highly educated, you know, fairly well-off, techie person, geeky person. So, so yeah, so it's people who like to experiment with digital tech. Uh, Many people actually know quite a bit about the digital tech, And so it does tend to be that sort of geeky demographic.
1: Yeah, and they're attracted to this idea then of quantified data and self-experimentation as well. That seems to be kind of part of the ethos behind it. Um, Yeah, let me just ask uh, one final question for this segment, which has to do with the intersection between self-tracking and gamification and behavior change. So it's not all just about self-tracking. I mean, most of these apps that people will be familiar with are very clearly directed towards changing how people behave, and they often do that through gamification. Perhaps you could maybe explain what that means and how it works in practice.
2: Yes, sure. Gamification is this term that has crept into quite a few areas of life now, and it relates to the idea that you take take a phenomenon or a practice or a behavior that is not doesn't tend to be thought about in terms of being like a game, but it's applying game-like elements. And it is a dominant method for the nudge philosophy. So I think we can sort of link gamification with nudge. Now nudge is this approach to persuasion, um, changing people's behavior that is about incorporating elements that don't overtly appear to coerce them into changing their behaviour but encourages them, them to, to change their behaviour. So it might be something like, you know, in school, canteens, you just don't provide certain foods that are considered unhealthy. You only provide, you know, there's only a choice of healthy foods or you put the very, very healthy foods at the, at the top of the counter and hide all the unhealthy foods, you know, under the counter so people actually have to directly ask for them. So that's where nudge comes in, in, in that you are manipulating the environment or you're manipulating the choices that people are offered um, to then encourage them to change their behaviour. But it is very much about behaviour change. It's about giving them that little nudge rather than overtly making them feel as if someone, you know, some authority is is having a more coercive effect upon them. Now, gamification is, is a form of nudge in that, it, as I say, it's about making something seem like a game, seeming playful, um, and therefore trying to encourage people to, to take up that behaviour or to relinquish um, a behaviour that's not considered um, good for them. So in the case of self-tracking, yes, we do see a lot of apps in particular um, or platforms that are about competition, for example. So one of the key aspects of some of the fitness self-tracking apps and, and platforms, such as Strava, which is a very popular one for people, for athletes who like to track their um, cycling or their, their running or walking um, practices, they, Strava very much emphasises what they call social fitness And the whole idea about that is that people are competing with each other, but they're also supporting each other. They're giving um, encouragement to each other. So um, you can see that in emphasising the competitive nature of those sorts of activities, already there's a form of gamification coming in. There's various apps where... There's one one's about running away from zombies um, called Zombies Run. Um, and people actually um, listen to this, this game as they're running along and pretend they're sort of in the middle of a, a, like a video game, I guess. There's a sort of, sort of a virtual world that they're running through involving zombies. <laughs> so... Yeah. There's lots of different ways that gamification is incorporated. And I've I've actually, with my colleague Gareth Thomas, I've actually um, published an article on the gamification of pregnancy in pregnancy apps. And one amazing phenomenon that we came across when we were analysing pregnancy apps was these games for girls, little girls that involve pregnant women and the little girls make up the pregnant women and they go shopping for the pregnant woman and make her look glamorous and beautiful. That's exactly the sort of terminology that is used. Not only that, they actually assist in the delivery, the caesarean delivery of the the baby. (laughs) And you see this this Barbie-looking pregnant woman, you know, cartoon character lying on the operating table looking very glamorously made up uh, you, you you make an incision in her abdomen, you pull out the baby, and then mother and baby smile happily and you've won the game. I mean, it's really a very bizarre form of the gamification of pregnancy. Um, but a less bizarre form in pregnancy is encouraging women to sort of um, photograph their growing bellies and make a time-lapse video. We would argue that that's a form of gamification too. It's making pregnancy seem like a, like a fun kind of playful activity. Yeah, I mean, so there's lots of interesting
1: angles you could take on that, but I do want to move on to talk about the self in in this quantified self movement. So obviously the concept of the self is central since it's there in the title, but the self is a a highly contested concept. And there's lots of interesting material in your book about how quantified self technologies, or let's say self-tracking technologies, to use the preferred term, contribute to and create new forms of self-understanding. I mean, there are all sorts of, speculative and science fiction-like questions to be asked here. Are we creating some kind of radically new type of hybrid human being? And there are important ethical and social questions to ask about this. And I'd like to maybe just get into some of these. So let me start with kind of an obvious entry point, which is the relationship between quantified self-technologies and autonomy and self-control. So I certainly see in a lot of the arguments in favor of technologies like this, that they are ways of Facilitating and encouraging self-control. So is that something that is true of users and proponents of these technologies, and is it something that you agree or disagree with, that it does have this positive impact say on autonomy and self-control?
2: Well, it's certainly the case that a lot of people who talk about using these technologies, whether it's on the quantified self-website or other self-tracking websites or in research, empirical research, where people are asking them about it, um, I've, I've also done my own research um, looking at people who self-track their cycling. So I've done a bit of research myself with people here in Australia, and um, it does come out a lot. Is yes, it does it, this notion of taking control over one's body by uh, creating a, a data set or uh, well, continuing data set, really? Because when you're self-tracking, it's, you're just continually um, generating data about yourself. It is a dominant um, discourse that people draw upon when they talk about using self-tracking and, and, in fact, what they get from it, how they benefit from it, is It is very much about this notion that, that the idea of getting better knowledge, more detailed knowledge and continually generated knowledge about yourself is a form of um, control. It's a sort of form of empowerment. It's a way of taking control over aspects of your life that you may see you may view as chaotic. There's a there's a very interesting website called the the unquantified self, which is a blog written by a woman in in the US who, she talks in very interesting ways about this. She's quite insightful when she talks about the way that the metrics that she gained about herself from engaging in self tracking, and she did become quite obsessively involved in self tracking. How these metrics did help her. Exert a, a sense of control over what she was considering to be an uncontrolled life. It allowed her to, for her at least, as she explains, that it allows the having these this information about herself allowed her that, to then act in an informed way to take charge of her life. Um, she does then talk about how she felt that this self-tracking in itself became uncontrolled, that she became too obsessed with it, so she felt like she lost control. <laughs> over her self-tracking practices because she was just becoming too too bound up in what the numbers were telling her and, and too obsessive about that. So that's why her website's called The the um, Unquantified Self because she actually gave it up because she didn't like the way she felt that like she was losing control over that. So, but that's a sort of extreme case. For most people when they talk about what they gain from self-tracking, it is that they've achieved goals. It's often about a goal that they've set themselves, whether it's being a more productive worker, using their time more wisely, getting control over chaotic emotions that they feel are, you know, disturbing their happiness, um, losing weight, becoming fitter. All those things um, are aspects of selfhood that are very much privileged in Western societies, being productive, healthy, you know, active uh, thin person, all of those things that we so much place so such an emphasis on people are adopting self tracking to try and achieve so so yes, absolutely that is a very strong discourse in self tracking that it's about optimizing the self it's about achieving goals that are being, that you are setting for yourself and in many cases people do find it does help them to do that
1: Yeah and I 'll be sure to include a link to that blog the unquantified self. In the show notes, so people can check that out. This raises another point, which uh, I was going to get to a bit later, but I actually think it's natural to raise it now, which is does the quantified self movement and, and the technologies underlie it contribute to a culture of narcissism in you know, contemporary societies?
2: Well, that's an easy charge to make, and and if you look at media accounts of quantified self, a lot of them do use that term narcissistic, navel gazing, you know, various synonyms for for narcissism, um, and I think that's you know, if 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 you want to take an easy pot shot at, at self tracking, uh, that is one that you could easily take because it, it on the, on this sort of you know. At the superficial level, it does seem, it can seem narcissistic. It can seem very self-involved. On the other hand, we are, again, it, it fits in very well to this dominant trend in Western societies about what we consider to be important elements of selfhood. And for a long time now, this notion that you should work on yourself uh, you should you should be actively taking responsibility to manage your life. You know, in this neoliberal environment, where the individual and and what the individual can do to improve themselves, manage themselves, regulate themselves, conform to the ideals of the the healthy and productive citizen, all of those discourses and all of those practices are directed. When you think about it, towards a slightly narcissistic. Um, mentality and a, and a technology of selfhood. They're all about um, what the individual as an individual should um, and can be doing to improve themselves and be a, an ideal citizen. So I think, you know, it's a bit of an unfair criticism to then single out self-tracking or the quantified self and say, well, they, they are narcissistic because, in fact, we are actually all encouraged to to think about ourselves in that way To And, in fact, they you know, if you are engaging these forms of self-tracking, you are actually – um, adhering to to these ideals of responsibleized, healthy, productive citizenship.
1: Yeah. So it, the the charge of narcissism is, fails to take into consideration this kind of broader ideology and the fact that the self tracking technology and the, and the movement associated with it, it is partly um, constituted or created by that. Uh, that broader ideology, although it also presumably it helps to reinforce that ideology too. So there's kind of a, a feedback circle between the two things.
2: Yeah, and I should, I should also say that, um, I mean, one of the modes of self-tracking that I identify is the communal mode. So there is a strong element amongst some self-trackers or groups of self-trackers that you share your, your information with other people as part of a group effort to to learn more about what the data can tell um, about people. As I, as I was talking about earlier, some, some fitness self-tracking, for example, is very much about encouraging other people and motivating other people, this notion of social fitness. So, you know, I think we have to also recognise that that is part of often not everyone, not everyone engages in sharing their data or this communal mentality, but it certainly is a strong aspect of some forms of self-tracking.
1: But is that communal aspect competitive usually? And so again, part of that, that culture of individual responsibility and kind of asserting yourself relative to a group, or is there something more kind of communitarian in the, the sharing that goes on?
2: Well, some of it is is individualistic, so it is about let you share your data and I'll share my data and we can each benefit from it. That is true. You do see that in some of the ways that the communal nature of self-tracking and sharing data are discussed. But on the other hand, if you look beyond that to things like citizen sensing practices, um, those, that is a um, form of self-tracking which involves a group of people living in a certain area, geographical area, using um, sensor-based technologies to go out and measure aspects of their local environment. So it might be things like air pollution or noise levels and those sorts of environmental factors, and then pulling that information to form activist um, for activist purposes. Um, so so it's basically about each person going out and using a self-tracking device. It might even be about how long it takes them to get to work, for example. It could be, you know, or to commute to work um, by by bicycle or walking or by public transport or car, whatever. It could be about traffic conditions. So it is actually tracking an element of that person's environment or their life. But it is for the purposes of sharing and pulling those data for more politically activist purposes. So there is an element where you can see that happening of where there is you know it goes beyond the individual for a more group um, endeavor. Yeah, and this actually reminds me that there is a, a
1: burgeoning citizen science movement as well, which is all about how some of these individual tracking behaviors can contribute to scientific knowledge and that kind of thing
2: yeah and I think that's a great potential for using digital devices for more political and activist purposes, which often we don't think about but but yes I think definitely in the open science the citizen science or the citizen sensing, whatever term you want to use for that, I think there are definite possibilities that that um, self tracking hasn't really explored to it to to its full potential yet
1: yeah let's get into maybe some of the more Metaphysical and quasi-science fiction-y aspects of this too. So you talk a bit in your book about how QS technologies might be contributing to or be products of a mechanistic and reductionistic view of, of the self. Could you speak to that a
2: bit? Yes, well, I think there is the possibility of using digital self, particularly digital, I mean, I guess – most of what I talk about in the book, it does relate to digital self-tracking because that is the, the newest way of doing it. I think that if if one starts to rely too much upon digital data to inform oneself about one's body or one's life, I think that can become reductive. And there are many examples in my own research with self-tracking people but other people's research there's this common saying now that people have that if I didn't track it, it didn't happen. Um, And this came out in my work with with self-tracking cyclists. If for whatever reason their self-tracking device didn't work on a particular cycling trip, it's almost like it didn't happen for them. Even though they were physically there doing it, they did the exercise, they they cycled those kilometers, (laughs) their heart rate went up, um, but because they didn't have the digital data to prove it and to add to their to their data set that they were generating from their self tracking, it's like it didn't happen, and they often felt very disappointed and or even angry about that, whether those you know that device did not work or they ran out of power or whatever happened. So um, I, I do I, I you know I do have a concern that if we do start relying upon metrics as a way of Well, if we privilege the metrics, if we privilege the digital data over other forms of knowledge about ourselves and our bodies, then that can be reductive, just just as any kind of privileging of any form of data source or knowledge source can become reductive. Um, I think that people who... Are tracking themselves, particularly their bodies. What they're doing is they're constantly negotiating what their senses, what the human senses tell them about their bodies, how they're feeling, um, what they're perceiving with their senses. They're negotiating those sensations and embodied knowledges with the digital data that their devices are generating. And they're constantly having to engage in that negotiation. You know, which form of knowledge should, should I be relying on here? Which should I trust? Um, and that's certainly come out in the, the research I've been doing with, with self-tracking cyclists. There's very interesting engagements in what I call data sense, and this notion of data sense incorporates the knowledge that one gets from your digital sensors, the knowledge that you get from your senses, your human you know, embodied senses, um, and the sense-making that you engage in when you you are negotiating all those uh, sensory um, knowledges. Um, And I think this is a really interesting ontological and epistemological question, this notion of the data sense and just how we come to privilege certain forms of data over other forms, digital or non-digital, and you know which we invest our trust and faith in, and how these do these forms of knowledges do impact on our own knowledge of ourselves. I think there's a lot of really interesting questions there that we're only really scraping the surface of at the moment. Yeah, and this relates to another point
1: that you you mention in your book, which is kind of the ways in which this technology contributes or encourages a dualistic view of of the self and the body. So some way in which the self is is separate from the body the thing that 's being tracked and controlled by the self, um, is that a, a prominent idea in, in in relation to the quantified self?
2: Well, I think it is, but only really because that is a a, a dominant notion that 's been um, held for for centuries now in western cultures again it 's a very this notion of the the Cartesian notion of the the body versus the mind or the body versus the self is a very strong one. And I think that the quantified self is really only springing out of that. It's really only, um, I guess, expanding that by by incorporating self-tracking into that concept. But, I mean, it's, it's, it is the dominant way that we tend to think of ourselves in Western cultures. So it's not surprising when really the quantified self uh, also draws on that notion when talking about the self. And, it's, and it is definitely there when you, when you look at how people, again, when, how they make sense of their data, you know how they, how they judge their body sensations against what the digital data are telling them, um, how they then incorporate those data into how their bodies feel about themselves. And it's getting back to that notion of control, again, that this notion that how your, your brain or your mind or the digital data that you are making sense of are then used to control your body. It is very much an opposition between the body and and the self, or the the body and the brain, definitely.
1: Yeah, and is there a a kind of maybe a discarding of the embodied senses and a kind of privileging of the data that's derived from these sensors and um, devices?
2: Well, I'm finding in my own research it's actually very complex, and I I don't think that people are necessarily – not trusting what their bodies tell them and trusting what the digital data, I think it's a constant negotiation. Um, for example, when we were talking to our self-tracking cyclists and we were, we were getting them to actually look at the devices after they'd had a ride, self-tracked a ride, we looked at the devices with them, we looked at the graphs on their app, for example, or on the Strava self-tracking platform, whatever it is they use to track their rides and we talked to them about, okay, how did you feel on that ride? Were you looking at your device? Was that changing the way you, you cycled? How accurate are these data that the app is telling you about? Um, and, and and we were finding that people were aware that, for example, one thing that a self-tracking app cannot tell someone when they're cycling is whether they'd had a good night's sleep that night, whether the wind conditions were such that they were really struggling to go very fast. Um, you know, if they were just not feeling that well because maybe they'd had too much to drink the night before, whatever. So people people were assessing the data in the light of their own embodied knowledge, very much so. So I think again, it's 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 way more than just a than just simply stating, oh, well, we we're now moving into a situation where people are going to start you know, basing their whole knowledge about themselves on their digital data. It's a it's far more complex and a far more contextual um, negotiation that is happening there.
1: Yeah, and, and again, this probably relates to another point to, to do with the, the cyborgification of humanity and maybe there's the, something you talk about too, which is, is it becoming increasingly difficult to draw the line between the self
2: and the technology of the self? Um look, I think that's big that's becoming that's become more difficult for a long, long time now. so trying to I, I think it's actually there's there's nothing we gain from doing that. I think we just have to accept that it, it, it's like that that argument between online and offline mm-hmm. um you know between reality and virtual reality well, it know doesn't make sense anymore. I mean we are most of us in Western societies are constantly. Not all, not every minute of the day, but we we are constantly online you know we're constantly engaging in our social relationships and other relationships through mediated through digital technologies so to to try and draw that distinction between offline and, and online uh, it no longer really makes sense and I think the same really applies and it's part of this same argument that it really applies to this notion that you know we are Sometimes we're technologically mediated and other times we're not. Um, or, you know, which part of us is and which part of it isn't. I really think that it's becoming more and more difficult and unproductive to try and make those distinctions. I think we just need to accept that, yes, we are just always inevitably technologically mediated, really. Yeah, so
1: the, the boundaries of the self or the, the, the notion of the self or something distinct from its technological artefacts has been, have been problematic for quite some time and the quantified self movement and the technologies are just kind of part of that more more general trend and i think that example of the the distinction that people like to draw between the online and offline world being just almost silly nowadays to draw that distinction it's all part of the same kind of world or life world or reality for people uh, is is a useful way of um, impressing that point
2: yeah, and I think I think to just to to, to push that that argument further, I think what, what, one thing that I have been writing about recently is this notion of how we, and I've talked about it a bit it already uh, already today, is this notion of how we engage with our digital data assemblages that are created about ourselves when we do interact with digital media, whether we know about it or not, and um, when we are able to be exposed to our our data, when we do see our data, that those data are a particular version of ourselves. They do reflect back to us aspects of ourselves, but they're not complete. you know, not everything about ourselves. Obviously, they're only telling us something about ourselves. It might, you know, if if we just take the example of our Google search history, which we can all, all check ourselves, we can see what we've searched for over the past, whatever it is, month, a year, two years. We can see what we've been searching for. Now, our search history tells us a lot about our interests, um, maybe even our obsessions, um, our anxieties, lots of different things um, our you know our work what we've been working on, what what's happening in our private lives, where we plan to go on holiday, what our um, health concerns might be it tells us a lot about ourselves, but not it only tells us something about ourselves, but the interesting thing is um, what it what it does reveal to us about ourselves. And that is just one form of the digital data assemblage. There are many others, of course, but um, I'm really interested, again, in, in those issues of how, how those representations of ourselves, our data assemblages, what they, you know, how they are incorporated into selfhood and how they are revealing of selfhood.
1: Yeah, let's move on to some of the political dimensions to this. So, I mean, we've we've already touched upon a lot of this because we've spoken about the ways in which the ideological configuration of society has fed into the construction of these apps and ideas around self, autonomy, self-control, narcissism, etc., how these are all expressive of ideologies and maybe reinforcing ideologies. But let's limit ourselves in this kind of final part of the podcast to talk about the ways in which this information that's tracked is used by the state and corporate actors, for example. So let me focus initially on the economics of self-tracking and the notion that, um, well, we're kind of contributing to a digital economy. So, I mean, who's benefiting most or who is benefiting from the data that we create? We might be benefiting in part, but who are the other people who benefit from the, the data that is being created?
2: Oh, well, the people who benefit the most would be your internet empires, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Twitter, um, you know. Uh, it's Apple, in fact, Apple number one. I think they're the most profitable, I mean, Facebook um, and Google. So um, those those are the actors and agencies who are benefiting from people's personal data. Um, No doubt about that. But also the you know there's there's lots and lots of other internet um, companies that are benefiting from data. There's national security agencies in terms of national security, crime prevention. um, Those. Security agencies are benefiting from people 's personal data that they are collecting for their own purposes. I think if you look into just about any social institution these days, the education system um, from preschool on to the university sector um, there are more and more there's more and more information collected on how students um, use digital technologies and and how they're learning, you know, learning analytics. Analytics has become a a big feature of software. Um, Google offers all sorts of um, educational packages for schools that many schools are now taking advantage of. So Google is learning a lot about students in schools, as just one example. Into the university sector, there are many ways that um, how student learning can be Documented by software and but not only that, how academics themselves, how their teaching strategies, how their publishing and citation rates, you know, all those sorts of things are are documented now. Google Scholar is just one example of that. So as academics, we don't have a choice of opting to Google Scholar. Google just collects citation rates about us automatically, um, and they're there for anyone to see. So we are being metricized involuntarily by Google Scholar. So there is there are so many domains now. Well, The workplace is, is, in general is another example of where information is collected about people, and in some cases they are being exposed to that information. So we can, just along with anyone else, we can check our Google Scholar metrics about ourselves. So that, I guess, is another form of self-tracking. Um, but in many cases, of course, we can't, we can't access the information that Google knows about us.
1: Yeah, I wonder if you have any thoughts on the ways in which Google and other you know, digital internet empires are presenting that information to us. I mean, the Google Scholar example for, it kind of hits home for me insofar as I, I like the fact that I have this information available to me and it's presented to me. And do you think that's part of a way of, of making the surveillance state or the surveillance society more acceptable to the individual? I, mean, I like checking in see how many times I've been cited and always getting depressed to see how infrequently I've been cited and also how most of those citations are, are self-citations, again, maybe part of a, <laughs> a, a personal
2: narcissism as well. Yeah, yeah. You're paying too much attention to that, John. <laughs> I need to, I need, I need um, to keep checking kidding. in. Man. I need, I'm just kidding. Yeah. It's very hard to uh, not do it. Look, I'll just give it. I'll just give an example that that goes beyond digital self tracking. Um, my husband bought some scale, some weight scales the other day. We've never owned weight scales, but now they're sitting in the bathroom, and every time I look at them, I am tempted to go on them, even though I do not. I'm not at all interested in tracking my weight. <laughs> they're just there, and so because they're there, it's it's tempting to use them, and I think that's what happens in many cases of self tracking. Google Scholar is one example. Now. Now, to just expand on Google Scholar, I do quite apart from any narcissism and self pleasure that we may get from seeing how many people are citing us, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with being. I mean, that's an aspect of um, one aspect of um, what we want to achieve as academics. We do want people to cite them, and why shouldn't we be pleased if. If people are citing citing us, um, and we can use them in many, we can use Google Scholar metrics in many productive ways when we're going for promotion, when we're being applying for research grants, showing our engagement, so on. You know, our, our impact. I'm, you know, I'm not arguing that these metrics are always negative at all. They're, in many ways, they can be very productive, very pleasurable for people to see their metrics. On the other hand, they can can be discouraging if the metrics don't reveal details that they want to, that they would be happy with. And um, we can see that actually in patient self-care monitoring. There's been a lot of really interesting research on patients with with, um, chronic diseases like diabetes or high blood pressure who are sent home with digital self-monitoring devices as part of their self-care regimes. And research shows that when the numbers are coming back, showing them that, you know, their blood sugar is under control or their blood pressure is under control, then that kind of self-monitoring is very, very sort of encouraging for them and makes them feel positive. But when the numbers come back showing that that they're not good, that their health is deteriorating, then that can be very discouraging for people and can make them feel like, you know they're really under a burden of surveillance and they don't like having to monitor themselves so again the context is really really important so i think again we need to really be aware of without making too many blanket statements of what that, what the negative or positive aspects of self tracking can be we need to be aware of exactly what context it's taking place in exactly what the voluntary or otherwise nature of it is Um, to what extent it is being imposed on people to what extent they are able to get access to their information or not um, and to what extent other other people or agencies or institutions are using people's data and profiting from their data not just using them but in fact making money out of people's personal data Um, and this gets to the Uh, The fifth mode of self tracking that I talk about in my book, which is exploited self tracking. Um, And that gets back to your question about who's profiting from people's data. Well, many, many agencies are profiting from people's data. We profit when we can use our data productively, but we don't often profit economically from them.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this brings me back to another question about the neoliberal aspects of this and the responsibilization of, of citizens. So I'm sure you're familiar with the examples of various insurance companies that offer discounts to people who agree to the installation of tracking devices, let's say, in their cars. And I believe there was this one health insurance company, at least, maybe you know more, that were encouraging users to wear Fitbit devices uh, and they would receive a reduction in their their premium so, I mean, one thing about those kinds of examples is that, again, it, it reinforces this culture that it's the individual who must take responsibility for safety and protection of others and their own their own health. And does this practice then have, have a tendency to kind of paper over or ignore the systemic problems in society? So, like, do, does a culture of of, tra- of self tracking and the responsabilization that comes with that Again, contribute to this ignorance of the systemic problems and uh, systemic inequalities and issues like that?
2: Yeah, I think it absolutely can do, and that's something I'm really concerned about and do talk about quite a lot in the book. So I think this notion of the individual responsible citizen who is taking steps to control their lives and be productive and healthy does tend to ignore the fact that, of course, many people are in situations where they have Less control over their lives, where they they have a great uh, you know um, degree of social economic disadvantage, um, and those the self self tracking does tend to ignore that kind of dimension of the social determinants of good health or ill health or work, work productivity or even the fact whether you can get a job or not. Um, so I, I am I am concerned about that, and I think it's interesting to speculate. About ways that self tracking can actually get beyond that and actually start, we talked a bit about citizen science and citizen sensing earlier. I think it's interesting to speculate about where where self tracking can be used not to focus just on the individual and you know how well they're doing in terms of controlling their lives and being responsible, but in terms of highlighting socioeconomic disadvantage, where can self tracking actually do that, where can people start to gather data which they can then aggregate and start to demonstrate just what the social determinants of disadvantage are? I I think that's a really interesting question which nobody has really explored much but I think self-tracking could have the potential to do that Um, but no one is is really yet focusing on how that can happen.
1: Yeah, so there could be this kind of resistive element to the technologies uh, Using it in a positive way to to challenge some of those ideologies, and that's something that we we need to explore and consider. Um, yeah. So let's just one kind of final question then in relation to the politics. This is a actually a more general philosophical question, but it's something that you you raise in your book, which is the. The relationship between self-tracking and perhaps the rise of of the risk society and the, you know the idea of uncertainty and embracing uncertainty and risk in the world, and also the the breakdown of of traditional normative structures, usually religious structures, and an increasing belief in or acceptance in kind of moral relativism and moral uncertainty. So, is self-tracking part of an attempt to reassert control in an uncertain and chaotic world? Is that? feature in the discourses about the quantified self?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we've talked about this a bit already, but um, I think, it, yes, it is because we value control so highly in Western societies. It is such an important feature of, of how we think about how people should exercise selfhood and technologies of selfhood then. So um, and self-tracking definitely is a mode of, of doing that. Um, but where it and I talked a bit about the unquantified self and how you can become uncontrolled in this attempt to exert control if 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 you become too obsessive with it. Um, and when it comes to the point that you don't feel good about yourself because you've forgotten to self track something or your device ran out of power, which which does come up in in some of self tracking people's accounts of disappointment and frustration around self tracking then I think we need to consider the control that self-tracking itself can have over people's lives. And if it is more and more imposed on people and pushed on people, and you raised the issue of health insurance earlier, we can very much see that happening in the United States in corporate wellness programs where um, people are being encouraged, nudged, pushed, whatever the word is you want to use, into um, using self-tracking fitness devices and uploading those devices to um, their employer's database as part of corporate wellness practices, but they're also linked to health insurance coverage, and if they choose not to engage in this activity, then they are faced with higher premiums for their health insurance coverage. So that raises the big question of how much control people do have over this practice, if they are being punished with higher premiums, I would argue that that then moves into imposed self-tracking. It's no longer voluntary and it's no longer just encouraged. I would say that that is therefore imposed and we are seeing this model of insurance, whether it's car insurance, health insurance, life insurance, very much moving to this, going away from actuarial risk assessment of groups based on pretty broad demographic Um, characteristics to a very individualised and personalised model of risk assessment of people. And I think that is uh, a very important aspect that we need to be considering in terms of where self-tracking is going and and will be heading in the future.
1: Yeah, and this imposition is something that can creep up on us in the sense that within the health insurance context, individually it might seem rational or beneficial to opt into the program, but as more and more people do that, it becomes basically impossible to opt out because if if you're opting out, you're revealing some important information about yourself, which might be deemed problematic by these kind of governance structures.
2: Well, I I think we're going to get to the point where if if someone doesn't agree to upload their self-track data on their physical activity or their weight or whatever it is, cigarette smoking practices, diet – then yes, they will be. They won't be offered. Perhaps they won't be offered health insurance and life insurance. They actually may be denied it unless they agree to upload those those um, personal details. Or they will be faced with much higher premiums. Yeah, and this can happen then in, in other
1: contexts beyond the insurance con- uh, context. I I would imagine. I can I can see it happening in, in workplace related activities in general, not just in relation to. Um, health insurance, let's
2: say. Oh, absolutely. What's already happening? It is already happening in workplaces. And again, we can raise the issue of Google Scholar, but we can always also look at how teaching assessments are done now with with um, educators in universities. So, we, as if you are teaching in a many universities you can't really opt out of having you know your students assess you and then being being reviewing the data that the students provide and having those data used in assessments of your um, work um, qualities.
1: Yeah, and my understanding actually is that Australia might be a little bit more kind of further along the track of, of, of resting a lot of weight on the importance of, of um, student assessments than certainly Ireland is anyway. Yeah, uh,
2: well, we may be the harbingers of the future though, so Ireland may be <laughs> adopting these practices before you know it.
1: Yeah, well, it was interesting because I was reviewing CVs for people applying for jobs a few years ago when I worked in England, and I noticed a number of the Australian applicants, actually all the Australian applicants put in this information about um, student assessment and and what the student reports, all of it kind of quantified as well. These little nice little bar charts revealing the scores that they've been given along various metrics, but none of the other applicants did that. But then once it becomes normalized and maybe there's an advantage to including it for people, then everyone has to start including it. So yeah, I could could see that happening for sure. Yep, I think it will. (laughs) Watch out. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to leave it there. So I, I know that you are an active user of, you know, social media and um, outlets, and so perhaps you could give some indication to people where they can track the work that you do. <laughs> track the work that I do that, um, that you present to the world, anyway. The aspects of yourself that you choose to present to, to the world. <laughs>
2: Um oh well um I have a Twitter account at DA Lupton I have my own blog called this sociological life um there's my Google Scholar profile of course yeah. <laughs> as well as my university profile so you know there's yeah academia.edu research gate I have profiles on all of those so um social science research network which is actually a, an open 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 to anyone to look at people's um, open access publications. so yeah, there's lots of lots of um, online forums where people can find out find out about my work or access my work. Yeah, and I'll be sure to include links to pretty much all of
1: them, at least the ones that I agree with <laughs> um, their corporate model anyway. okay. Um,
2: so yeah, thanks for joining me today for this conversation, Deborah.
0: It's a pleasure, John, thank you.